The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. He who eats this bread will live forever. Many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you that do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who those were that did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The Gospel of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I finally arrived at uh, the moment of parenting that everyone dreams about. I'm reading the Chronicles of Narnia to my kids. It's pretty great. I don't know how much Finley's really getting. Uh, but some weeks back, we read through The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. You guys remember that one? Remember Eustace, the cousin? Oh, man, that guy was the worst. If you haven't read it, Eustace is, is the Pevensey's cousin, so the kids that initially go through the wardrobe, right? He's their cousin, and he's just a total pain. And at one point in, in the story, he wanders off. They've been traveling by ship, going into unknown lands and territories, and they're all working to try to rebuild the ship, and everyone needs to work and help. And he's just sort of like, eh, I'm going to go take a nap. So he wanders away to find a place to sleep, and he unknowingly wanders into a dragon's lair filled with gold and jewels. And you remember, he, he puts on that bracelet up on his upper arm, right? And he wakes up in pain because suddenly the bracelet has shrunk and it's eating into his arm, or so he thinks. And eventually he discovers that he has become a dragon because this dragon's lair's riches are enchanted. And after some time as a dragon, he has this profound encounter with Aslan, who you don't need me to tell you is, of course, the Christ figure in the book. And it's in this encounter that Eustace the dragon begins scratching off his skin. And he's using his talons, and he, he peels off layer after layer. He, he keeps going, but it's not enough. His arm's still in pain. He's still covered in scales, and he remains trapped as a dragon. But Eustace, telling the story to his comrades later, says that, Then the lion said to me, but I, I don't know if it really spoke. He said, You'll have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I lay flat down on my back to let him do it. And the first tear that he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. 
And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. He peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly-looking than the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. As we finish out the sixth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John, we come to a crossroads that I think every person who follows Jesus will eventually arrive at. And it's the recognition that Jesus speaks difficult words, words that want to make us turn back from following him. But Jesus' difficult words are also words of spirit and life. We have to recognize that we have been born into a system that is based on self-justification and ruled by death. And this is often what the New Testament means when it talks about flesh or the world. So like when Jesus here says the spirit is what counts, the flesh is of no matter. He's not saying materialism doesn't matter. It's not the denigration of materiality. It's a gloss to sum up the near universal posture of humanity, which has been this sort of prison cafeteria, elbows out, guard what's mine and fear everybody else. Sound familiar? The work of self-justification is grueling. And the retirement plan is to be held captive by death. Now this reality expresses itself differently with different personalities, of course. For some, it leads to hyperactivity and achievement, as if somehow we are going to cheat death by achieving the self-justification that we never quite seem to get. For others, it leads to despair and apathy. Nothing matters. And still others, there's this intentional rebellion against the perceived status quo of success. But what's interesting to me is that these responses to the law of self-justification don't just happen out there. They all have mirrors in our various misfired responses to Jesus. So as the church carries forth her work in the world of proclaiming Christ to the world, she must do so with a keen eye for how this proclamation can get misheard the way that it so often gets rerouted through the same contortions as all the other new information, running this tiring, circuitous route of self-justification. If we're not careful, we can start to think of Jesus in a sort of meet-the-new-boss, same-as-the-old-boss sort of way. And when we do this, we end up breaking ourselves upon the rocks of Jesus' difficult words. And some of us will resort to frenetic activity, only this time it's spiritual activity. But the basis is still the same. 
We're still trying to justify ourselves in light of Christ's difficult words. Others of us will resort to a disengaged apathy and still others a sort of punk rock rebellion. If we hear the proclamation of Christ's lordship over all things, and our reaction is, well, now I've really got to keep up, or conversely, nothing I do matters, then we have essentially missed Christ. The church should always understand herself as Lazarus, standing in grave clothes at the opening of a tomb, squinting in the light of the sun, having done nothing other than be dead and hear the words of Christ, words that Paul actually speaks to the Ephesian church, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In Christ, the entire old order has been put to death. It has been swallowed up in his own death. As Robert Capon said, the human race is positively addicted to keeping records and remembering scores because of our self-justification machines, right? We are positively addicted to keeping records and remembering scores. He goes on, what we call our life is for the most part simply juggling the juggling of accounts in our heads. How much do we owe? Who owes us what? Who's ahead here in the justification game? Then he says this, Yet if God has announced anything in Jesus, it is that he, for one, has pensioned off the bookkeeping department permanently. Your record has been crucified with Christ. There is no more self-justification. And yet we have been so locked in this system, it's so difficult for us to break out of, especially when we start to hear difficult words from Jesus. And here is another of those antinomies, those paradoxes that seem to mean opposite things and yet really mean something of the same thing. Christ's words bring resurrection life, but in so doing, they require death. That's why they're so difficult. Eustace receives his boyhood back from Aslan as a gift, but it's not without having his skin ripped off. We too receive life from Christ, but not without shedding our scales of self-justification. Another way of saying all of this is in that dirty little word from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Our translation is a little more archaic than most of us know that text, subject. Usually we hear it as submission. We tend to think of submission as giving up as an indication of weakness or hedging your bets or something. But submission is not spinelessness, and it is not apathy. Submission requires a strength that is only forged in the furnace of habitual, selfless love. Nobody just wakes up and becomes a martyr. No one just all of a sudden, out of nowhere, decides that they would rather die than recant of their faith. No, it takes as Rowan, Rowan Williams so Britishly put it, a much longer prosaic process of unselfing, submitting. As I said last week, Christ feeds us on himself in order to form us into sequela Christi, sequels of Christ, being rooted in him. I mean, what is happening in the, in the Eucharist feast? 
What is happening right now in our midst? This is the moment where the church enters into the liturgy that Christ is offering eternally to his Father. And our hearts are lifted up into the heavens where angels and archangels have ceaselessly been singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. And there in the heavenly throne room stands the Lamb who was slain from before the foundations of the world. And it's in this feast that St. Paul says, right, as often as you eat of this bread or drink of this cup, you proclaim what? The Lord's death until he comes again. What could this meal mean other than following him into submission? We are enacting ritually a symbolic unification with remembering Christ's death over and over and over again. And here again I say the church must take care not to obscure either the life-giving nature of Christ's words nor the difficult nature of Christ's words. As members of Christ's church, we must not be co-opted into the bloody demands for justice without mercy. If you spend any time on social media, you see this happening all the time. Justify yourself or die is how our culture is living. But neither should we pretend that those who show zero indication that they have actually come and died with Christ have actually been brought into resurrection life. There's a difficulty, and there's a life-giving nature to the words of Christ. When Christ tells the rich young ruler to give up all of his wealth and come and follow him, the young man goes away sad because he was unable to see past the difficult death of autonomy to wealth and see life, and so he failed to receive life. But you know what's so tragic about that? Is that really it's because he failed to account the relative value of his wealth. It doesn't have to be money for you, by the way. It could be any other thing that you think is bringing you life. He failed to account its relative value value. When one kingdom invades another, the toppled kingdom's money becomes worthless. It's wallpaper. It's toilet paper. The question is, has Christ toppled your kingdom yet? Have you started to realize that the riches on offer in him far outweigh whatever temporary pleasure your money or your status can buy you? The order of worship in the church's liturgy isn't incidental. It's set up to account for the reality that we require a continual conversion, which is a process that the Eucharist table implies. We assemble. We're gathered here by God's Spirit, and we are met with God's greeting. And immediately in his greeting, we are met with the collision of his kingdom from the word go. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be his, not my kingdom, his kingdom. It's difficult because it requires our kingdoms to be dismantled. It's not that we don't bring all of our stuff with us. We do, but we bring it and we set it up there. 
in a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving because it's God's kingdom. It's difficult because our kingdoms are being revealed for the rubble that they truly are, but it's also life-giving because we're being welcomed into the very life of God through no good deed of our own. And then we hear the summary of the law. The reminder that even if we achieve the letter, don't murder, we fall so far short of the Spirit. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so we cry out, Holy God, holy and mighty, holy immortal one, have mercy upon us. And we hear the word of God read, and at times it's perhaps another collision that explodes our neat categories or destroys our self-justification. And at other times, it's perhaps a salve that soothes and binds up our wounds. And we read the gospel of Christ from the center of the gathering as a reminder enacted in our bodies that Christ's words are life. They are the very center of our life. And we cross ourselves as a way of physically praying and remembering that Christ's Words of life are words that lead to the cross. They're difficult. The life-giving nature of Christ's words lie on the other side of his crucifixion, the other side of death. We confess our sins. Sometimes it's barely felt. Other times, it's as if we are Eustace and the Lion of Judah has cut us down to the very core of our being with his claw. And we receive absolution again under the sign of the cross, another embodied declaration that our life in God's kingdom is made possible only through the death of Christ. From the very beginning, we are acting out conversion turning away from the sandcastles that we've been so intent on propping up and turning toward the rock of ages. We leave behind the poisonous food of self-justification and we drink deeply of the Eucharistic wine, becoming inebriated in a way that leads to soberness of spirit as we feast on Christ's body and blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The church in all of her life and liturgy is a school wherein we learn ever new and difficult ways of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, who is the husband who sought us out, submitting himself to death, even death on a cross, that he might present us to himself as a spotless bride without blemish. We're going to have a moment of silence, as we often do. And in that silence, I invite you to hear this. What is the difficult word that Christ has been trying to tell you? And in in that difficulty, whatever it is, hear him asking you as he asks each of us, do you want to go away too? Let us ask the Spirit that we may all respond with the words of Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
you have the words of eternal life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.